Cultivating cannabis under the sun has been my preference during the last 10 years, my first years cultivating cannabis. It was my preference because I absolutely believe that sun-grown cannabis has wider terpene and cannabinoid profiles, thus making it excellent medicine. That said, I also know sun-grown is leafier, and living where I live on Vashon Island in the Pacific Northwest, plants rarely finish outside. So, outdoor plants may be superior in many ways philosophically, but in reality, where I live, anything that takes more than 50 days to bloom doesn't have a chance to finish. For those of you who follow Shaping Fire, you know that this is one of the reasons I've become such a proponent and supporter of autoflowers. I like that I can harvest them fully flowered in warm, dry, and sunny September. So about a year ago, I decided I wanted to try my hand at growing indoors. It was a struggle for me to decide because I identify as a regeneratively-minded cannabis cultivator and struggled with the idea of using electricity to power my lights. In the end, I decided to buy an exceptionally environmentally friendly BIOS LED light and went forward growing a 4x4 tent inside in hopes of growing my own cannabis medicine with fully finished flowers. And the little tent grow would also act as a good demonstration to teach from on Instagram so I could help other patients. I reached out to soil biologist Leighton Morrison and asked him to guide me in setting up a horizon-style substrate as he outlined in Shaping Fire episode 54 on geology and biomimicry. He said sure, and off I went to try and build an indoor raised bed using all of the regenerative and living soil techniques I use every summer outdoors. These are the voyages of the Shaping Fire Living Soil Tent. Its mission, to explore strange soil biology, to seek out best practices and fire flower, to boldly go where nature guides us. <laughs> if you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, my returning guest is Leighton Morrison. Leighton is a lifelong enthusiast of both aquaponics and living soil. His obsession with Biosphere 2 led him to set up an aquaculture at the Rodale Institute. Leighton worked with world-renowned biologist Dr. Elaine Ingham, blending his aquaculture byproducts with compost and worm castings to prove that natural inputs could replace synthetics in commercial cultivation. Leighton consults widely for agriculture, soil regeneration, and commercial land management projects throughout the United States. Leighton is currently founder of Kingdom Aquaponics and invented their line of living compost and compost tea living soil products. Leighton is a sought-after speaker and co-host of a weekly podcast on the Future Cannabis Project YouTube channel. One note, both Leighton and I lost loved ones this week, and this episode is a bit less jolly than most of the times that we're together. If we sound a bit off, that's why. We're, we're sad. 
During today's episode, we will describe in detail the first cycle of the Shaping Fire Horizon-style indoor raised bed. During the first set, we will review how I set up the substrate horizons. During the second set, we will discuss our soil tests, the arrival of the first pests, and any risk of a perched water table. And then during the third set, we'll talk about ground covers, scrogging, and growing mushrooms in the substrate below the cannabis plants. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Layton. Thanks, Shango. It's always a pleasure to come back and, and chop it up with you. Right on. And, you know, this is kind of a different show, right? Because, uh, you know, often when I have you on the show to talk about something within your expertise, um, you know, I'm essentially trying to draw out, you know, this, this, this academic and practiced information out of you. But, but today we're, you know, you're here because you taught me, you know, this, this biomimicry style or what people are calls, calling horizon style growing technique. And, um, and I figured if I was going to do a show where I kind of did a debrief of how my first cycle went, then might as well have you here. So, so thank you for both teaching me the style and then coming back to help me tell everybody what I did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for uh, being a sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb today. <laughs> right on. All right. So, so you know, the I want to remind everybody before we get going that the application of your strategy can look a lot of different ways, right? Like you can plug in different soil recipes into this model and it'll still work great. So, so don't get hung up on my own choices of specific inputs. Like for example, like you can get nitrogen a lot of different ways. I personally have had excellent success over the years with dehydrated pig's blood. That may not be your preference though. So don't get hung up. It doesn't matter like what your inputs are to learn the substrate style. It's all about the division and the percentages of clay, silt, sand, organic matter, and that. That's the cornerstone of this approach. So, like, like during this first set, you're going to hear what I use, um, but it may not be what you use. So, so don't get too hung up on that. Um, so, so let's start out by talking about um, uh, how your um, biomimicry um, horizon style played out in real terms for for my bed. So. I use a grassroots fabric pots four by four raised bed in a four by four tent um, in uh, in the shaping fire offices. So so what that gives me is an eighteen inch soil depth with about you know two or three inches of um, hardwood matter on top and we'll talk about that hardwood matter uh, later so so if you are working in a container that's deeper than 18 inches um, your numbers are going to be a little bit different than mine which is why we're going to be giving you percentages of these different areas so so when we go through this remember these numbers are based on my 18 inch soil depth from a grassroots fabric pots four by four all right. So with that said, there are there are three layers in a um, horizon style bed. The the top layer is the O horizon. Next down is the A horizon, and then under that is the E horizon. So so if you take that eighteen inches, the f- in in in, in Layton's style, and by by the point Layton, at any point, if I'm like saying this wrong, feel free to correct me. Well, you, you did say percentage, and you really shouldn't. You should say fraction. So basically, the horizontal soil system is based on a seven part system. So 
your E horizon is one seventh, your A horizon is two sevenths, and your O horizon is four sevenths. So that's the easy way to break it up. So whatever your depth is, divide it by seven, and and then you know use that as a uh, method to um, building the the proper depths. Fabulous. So I took that math and and Leighton and I uh, applied it to the 18 inches. And so that ends up with an O horizon, your top layer, your O horizon for my bed is 10 inches. And so that's all going to be organic matter. And so um, for me, I chose uh, uh, to use no-till soil that from pots that I've been using the last few years. And... um, and, and, and so it's, it's, it's in quarters. It's a quarter old soil. It's a quarter fish compost, a quarter pit moss, and a quarter um, Alliance soil inoculant, which, which actually is a product that, um, that Leighton makes, which is essentially a, uh, an incredibly living soil. Would that be a fair thing to call it? Well, it's really just kind of... Um, organic matter that has been infused with with fish biology and um, soil terrestrial biology. You know, it's just basically I make this very biologically rich compost. I strip it mechanically um, and add uh, fish brew, uh, bold flow, um, to it as I'm stripping it. So it once it comes out of the stripping process, then I screen it out um, to different. Um, coarseness and so the alliance is a very coarse product so it's kind of like a you know you'd fibrous compost but it's incredibly biologically active so you know if, if you want to get that from Leighton, you can and it, and it will certainly help get your bed going but theoretically if if you didn't want to get something like that you could double up on your um you know your no-till soil you're bringing in from your outdoor pots and then go with you know half soil a quarter fish compost and a quarter pit moss in my case, because um, I'm not a big fan of using peat moss, um, because I don't, I don't, I don't see it as being a, a renewable resource, and they destroy pit bogs to get it. So, or peat bogs rather <laughs> to get it. So, so I'm very happy with the pit moss, which is made out of um, uh, uh, um, uh, organic uh, paper, and I find that works really well. So, in my case, I've got a quarter my regen soil a quarter fish compost a quarter pit moss and a quarter of this uh super infused stuff from Leighton. now let me ask you this um did you get the growers grade or did you get the cocoa complete um of the pit moss yeah i just got this they have a few different products yeah i just got this the uh i forget actually the name of it the, it's probably but, growers but, grade. But, but but it's it's the stripped down stuff i got the stuff without any added nutrition Okay, and, and so I wanted to control that. Perfect. Great. So, so th- those are the major components, and and within that, I also put my amendments. Right, um, the amendments, like the physical amount of them, is so uh, small that it really doesn't um, play. Uh, a role in the overall recipe as far as like like how the soil is built the, adding the nutrition you know you could probably hold it in you know in four hands right so but for me i chose uh crushed oyster shells uh ollie fish compost dehydrated organic pig's blood of course dynamico fungal inoculant uh pit moss and then uh that supercharged supercharged soil inoculant from Leighton. 
So, so, so you take that and you mix that all up and that becomes what, but what we're calling here, your organic matter. Um, so, so Leighton, uh, do you like how I describe that? Yeah, no, I think you described it perfectly. You know, it's it's basically you're building a soilless medium or a super soil. Um, you know, because you're adding the amendments, we would tend to call that a super soil over a soilless medium. But that's you know that's the bottom line is you're 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 still using a traditional style of growing cannabis, um, but you've also got those added benefits of the E horizon and the A horizon to help mitigate moisture as well as provide sand, silt, and clay uh, for the organic or for the bio, uh, biology to mine and, and provide nutrient. Did you intend to call this a soilless medium? I mean, it's half soil. Um, well, no, the top, the O-horizon, is a traditional soilless medium. But isn't half of that, like, soil? Like, a quarter of it is my, um, my no-till soil from my pots, and then another quarter of it is the compost that you make. Isn't, doesn't that count as soil? I mean, I always well, thought that soil-less is, like, quar and peat and, you know, perlite and all that stuff that actually isn't soil. Correct. And, and you know, I may have misspoke because I don't really know what your no-till soil pot was. Like, was it peat? Was it? No, it's none of that. It, it was, it was like, it was just, um, like literally old soil that I got originally out of bags that was just like potting okay, soil. All right, then it but, is soil. but then okay. I, I used it for five years. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it was, it was like uh, bad soil gone good. You know? So it was broken down. Yeah, yeah, totally. So then, yes, I would refer this to more as a soil than a soilless medium. Right. Although you do have soilless medium components in it. Uh, yeah, the pit moss, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and compost, because compost is not soil. Mm. Eventually, it'll break down to soil. But in in the beginning parts of the composting process, it's more of a nutrient-rich uh, material than it is, per se, a soil. But we can, you know, we don't, we don't need to get too crazy on the finites. All right. So, so that's, that's your top 10 inches in, in when you're talking about an 18 inch bed. So, so, um, so then your next layer down is what's called your A horizon. And when using Layton's sevenths model, uh, if you have an 18 inch bed, this next layer, this A horizon is five inches. And the A horizon is made up of, uh, 17% clay, 13% silt, 50% sand, and then the last 20% is another portion of the organic matter mix that you made for the O-Horizon. So when you're making the, the organic matter for your O-Horizon, you're going to want to make you know enough to fill up the O-Horizon plus some extra to go in the A-Horizon. And then, and then, and then at the end, also, I threw in a splash of biochar. I mean, biochar is so potent. Um, you know, I just like took a couple handfuls and throw it, threw it in there, so it was there. But um, you know, it's um, it's such a small component of it. One of the crazy things about this is, you know. I, since I was trying to make this bed as regenerative as possible, um, with the obvious uh, exception of uh, the fact that it was indoors and I was using electricity, um, I decided that I wanted to wildcraft all this stuff. 
And um, wow, depending on where you live, your mileage may vary trying to do that. Um, the clay was easy, right? As many of you know, I live on an island. And then uh, along the outskirts of our island, uh, along the beaches, um, we have got all sorts of soil erosion that is going into uh, you know the salt water. And so getting clay for me was really easy. I just, I just went down and there were big hunks of beautiful clay that were just falling off the clay wall where you could see all the, all the layers of, of of earth exposed from you know the ocean water um, eroding it so that was e- that was great grabbing the clay was easy heavy as hell but but easy to get and then uh, the sand was certainly easy as well since I live on an island um, I could just collect some sand and when you're doing only doing a four by four bed you're hardly taking any you know it's like a like five gallon bucket you know um, the hard part for me was this damn silt um, you know I I I understood from Leighton that I'm, I wanted to look for silt um, along uh, running fresh water that was heading towards um, the salt water uh, around the island. And so I, w- I looked at, I, I first I went to an estuary on the island where the, where the fresh water meets the salt water. And I grabbed a bunch of that and I brought, took it home and I gave it a, a shake test in a mason jar. And, um, and the component of silt was very low. Layton, why don't you explain how to do a, uh, a mason jar uh, shake test for people who have never done that? Sure. It's, it's a home or an at-home um, textural test. So basically, you fill a mason jar um, three-quarters full of soil. Then you add water till the water's just above the top of the soil that you added while still leaving an air airspace. Um, then you seal the lid, shake it up, set it down, and over the course of two days, um, what will happen is everything will settle and the water will go clear. And that's the key. You want that water to be clear. Um, and then you will see the layers. The first layer, um, the sand, will settle out the fastest. Um, second, the silt will settle out. And lastly, the clay will settle out. And usually you'll get some organic matter floating on the surface of the water or floating on just on top of the clay layer. So you basically get sand of clay and organic matter um, ratios or percentages uh, by doing this. Um, and so I, I did this, and, and and every time I took a sample, it was like almost all clay. There was hardly any silt. And so so after I did that and, and was not getting a high enough silt percentage where the, the fresh water was meeting the salt water at the estuary, I decided to work my way backwards up that stream uh, further up. So I'm like, okay, maybe instead of doing estuary, maybe I should take it um, from a long stream, right? Maybe maybe there'll be more silt there. And so I took another sample there, brought it home, shook it up, let it sit for two days, looked at it, and there was more silt, but still not enough where I thought that I was going to be able to like divide it off to be able to get 13% silt in my A horizon. So I'm like, damn, I still need more. So then, so then I worked my way um, up even further um, I, I, I was planning on going up as far as a, a, a freshwater pond that was up this stream, but what I found was an elbow in the stream um, where it was not going straight downhill. It came down and it kind of like jagged right, and then it continued down. And in that elbow, I found silt. So for whatever biomechanics re- reason, that elbow held the silt better than the other two places. And when I took it, um, you know, it's, it still wasn't like 80% silt like I was hoping, but it was like 50% silt. And that was like way, way better than anything else I had gotten. So I'm like, fine, we're just going to call this good. Um, 
And because uh, you know, it's always good to remember that this. While while we have goals, we we have we have benchmarks for what we're trying to hit. Um, if if you can't hit the benchmarks with what you have available locally, just freaking go for it. And so I did, and um and and so that's where I harvested um. You know, just a little bit of silt because again, this is only a four by four bed, and I grabbed it and uh, and then added that as my thirteen percent silt. So I guess technically, in my math, since I was using material that was only fifty percent silt as my thirteen percent silt, I probably only have seven percent silt in my bed, and um, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't sure how to make up for that silt, and I, I don't think I did this right. But I, I actually tried to make up for some of the silt by adding some volcanic Akadama clay from Japan that I had. And and I'm not, I'm not recommending you do that, right? Because bringing bringing clay from Japan for this is like so environmentally a bad idea. Um, but I happen to already have the stuff from when I was doing. Uh, aquariums back in the day, and I'm all like, "Hey, this is a good use for it." So, um, so I put that in there. So, so before we go on, um, is there any way that that makes sense, Layton, using Akadama volcanic clay as a replacement for silt, or is that just like totally wrong? No, you know, there's a technical challenge to making a definitive difference between silt and clay. Um, I try to stick along the lines of that silt is organic matter broken down uh, about as far as it can uh, um, without specialty um, bacteria to break it down further. Um, Clay is more like ground up rock um, or ash from a volcano. So bottom line is though, they're the very, very fine, small particles that have been pretty much broken down uh, as much as they can through natural processes other than these really finite special um, bacteria that can continue to break them down further um, and make them, again, uh, plant available so that the plant can uptake those minerals. Um, and then when the plant dies, uh, guess what? It goes back to silt. So it, it, it gets really... Uh, complicated at that microscopic level of what is what is a clay platelet, what is a silt particle. Um, traditional soil science has always measured these uh, by particle size, and I think that's you know again kind of archaic in this day and age where we know that the clay platelets are both positive and negatively charged. So that the top of the clay platelet is, is um, positively charged and the outer rim, think of it as a flying saucer, the outer rim is negatively charged. So the negatively charged rim pulls positively charged cations and stores them. So these are nutrients um, around the outside perimeter. So uh, silt doesn't do that. Um, silt is is generally negatively charged um, does not have a positive uh, aspect of it so and sand is is has no charge so how do we define these as through particle size and not through um, characteristics of perhaps both weight um, and also um, the ability to hold certain nutrients so I you know again I think that soil science has got to kind of come up to speed with what we know as far as um, you know some of these more advanced understandings of these materials 
materials. So it sounds to but, me that you know, even again, even going, though I used even though I used that volcanic Akadama clay, like that's cute and that filled up the place, but it really wasn't a silt replacement. It was just something else that probably helped the bed. And let me ask you a question: When yeah. you when you did your silt test, what was the other component? Was it clay or was it sand? Uh, it was sand. Okay, so so here again, you know, you can use that combination um, to understanding that okay, of this material I collected in the stream, fifty uh, percent of it was sand, fifty percent of it was silt. So now I just use more of that and don't add any sand. You see where I'm going with this? I do. So that's, you know, again, you you have to do a little bit of math and, and apply some common sense, but you can get pretty close to these ratios, especially if you're using um, this textual uh, at-home test method to determine exactly what your inputs are. And... And then just kind of play with them a little bit. And, and again, I use the ratio 17 clay, 13 silt based on their properties. Um, so if you're off on your ratios, it's not the end of the world. Um, but again, you know, your goal is to try to get as close as you can to that um, for biological processes. So that you're allowing the specific biology that breaks clay down, that doesn't break silt down, and vice versa. So you're just providing all of these inputs for really getting that advanced level of, of uh, living um, biology to have all of the potential um, tools and uh, methods to, to function at high level. And again, you know, we haven't even started talking about fungi uh, because they also are really important in breaking those things down and pulling out uh, nutrients as well as, you know, providing biofilm to act actually make aggregates out of them but we'll get into that in a little bit so so the last thing that's in this a horizon is like that splash of biochar i just i just put in three handfuls and um is there a, a reason why the biochar goes in the a horizon instead of in the top of the o horizon you know you can go in either place um generally i would probably be more thrilled to throw it into the O horizon so that it's really going to be like a little condominium for, for biology to set up shop in. But in the A horizon, it's fine. I mean, the roots are going to get down into the A anyway. So it's either way. And, and you know, I encourage people, too, to get real creative with their O horizon. There's no reason why you can't put some, you know, old hay or, or some leaves that you've collected or some forest stuff in there. <clears throat> you know, it's, again, diversity, diversity, diversity. I'm all about that. And all that forest stuff is going to be biologically active with local microbes, too. So, you know, Absolutely. That, that's always an extra... Yeah, extra extra win. Okay, so 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 far we've got the first top ten inches is the O horizon of organic matter, and then next down is the A horizon that is five inches, which is the clay, silt, sand, and a little bit more organic matter. And then on the bottom of the bed, the last three inches is the E horizon, which is sand and rocks. And um, 
And, you know, you, you could use bagged sand if, you know, if you live in an urban environment or something. I'm lucky that I just happen to live on an island, and so sand is everywhere. And, um, and I loved the idea that it came already living with, uh, you know, water-based IMOs that also were oxygen-tolerant since the, 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 the water, the tide goes up and down, right? So um, I grabbed a bit of sand from the beach, and then... Uh, <laughs> So, so Leighton, why don't you explain why you recommend the rocks should be multicolored? Well, every color um, is, indicates a level of mineral. Um, so the different colors represent different parts of the periodic table. So the, the more colors you get, the more variety of those minerals um, are available for the mycorrhizae to mine. Um, and, you know, something else... Um, that you said about bag sand, just be careful not to get play sand. You don't want the white, fluffy stuff. You want coarse, it should be taupe color or yellowish or brownish. Um, that's the type of sand you want, not the white, powdery stuff. That's important. Right on. Yeah, that white, powdery stuff, that's more like over-processed, uh, like white flour, you know? Right, <laughs> Yeah, you, right. Want, you, and, want, you want chewy stuff. And, and I encourage everybody to... Um, take a five gallon bucket and fill it half full of sand and then take measurable gallons of water and dump it into that bucket until you see the water just going over the top of the sand and then look at how many jugs you used <laughs> you will be blown away at how much water coarse sand can actually hold right on so 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 Leighton explaining to me why having multicolored rocks started me on a very difficult process because I was down on the beach and I was token and I was looking at all the colors of all the different rocks on the beach and I'm like you know I can I can collect these rocks and I'll have like you know 15 different colors this is going to be the the best bed ever and so and so I started collecting these rocks and um, and then you know Leighton had told me that uh, if you can break the rocks open, like crack the rocks, because if you're if you're wild crafting rocks, um, they have gotten smooth on the outside and they don't leach their minerals uh, very very conveniently. And so he's all like, you know, if you can hit it with a hammer and break it open, um, you'll have the raw interior so that the minerals can be extracted. Well, I was all excited about that, so so I started collecting rocks and then I put them in a burlap bag. And and then I took my sledgehammer to it to break them open. And then, oh, that was great. So I poured those into a five-gallon bucket. And then I grabbed another bag, a burlap bag full, and I hit that with a sledgehammer. And I did that for like an hour. Got totally exhausted, all sore. And I'm like, all right, I got my damn rocks. And I bring them in the house, and I put them in the bed. And they were like this little dribbling in the corner of this big-ass bed. And I'm like, oh, shit, I have to do three inches of the whole bed of this. And I'm I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I do not have the strength and the time and the life and the muscles for this. And so, um, what I what I decided to do is, um, I did that process like four more times, so that let's say like maybe an inch of the three inches was hand wildcrafted and hand broken up rocks, and then, um, and then I went to the. Um, 
the landscaping store and and i bought like i honestly don't know what the rock is anymore i forget but it was it was just their like straight up gray drainage rock that they use for landscaping and i just poured bags of that in there so um i say this a so you can laugh at me <laughs> but 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 also to to realize that you know we can only do what we can do and uh when i realized how much physical labor that was going to be i just decided that you know what having some natural rocks from the wild environment that's great um but you know what i'm going to have to finish the fill with what i can just go buy and dump and that's what i did and i got great results but um I just figured it was worthwhile because if if you are going to try to wildcraft your inputs, you're bound to run into something that's hard to find where you live and just don't stress about it, right? Just just grab some stuff and move on. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, There's right. no such thing as perfection in nature. <laughs> so yeah. don't try to be perfect. <laughs> so it's really exciting when you get to this next part and you um and you get to put everything in the bed, right? At this point in the process, it was kind of like um you know, like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're having, you know, a chef night and you're making something special at home, you can use the, the French strategy of mise en place, right? Where you, where you get all your ingredients, you cut everything up and you put them in like little ramekins there on your counter. And then once all your ingredients are set, then you go and you make your meal. This is kind of mise en place, but for like soil science. I went ahead and I collected everything. I got everything ready. And then the day came that I made the bed. Now, I want to put in here something that I did not realize I should have had until afterwards. So I don't have this in my bed, but after I made the bed, Layton's all like, oh, you should put a four-inch PVC tube along one of the corners so you can see how much water's in the bottom. And I'm like, what? I'm not digging that corner back out, no. And, and, and so, but, but if I were to do this again... I would do this. So, so Leighton, would you explain in retrospect why you, know, you recommended that I did that? Because you couldn't get your hand down between the liner and the tent. So there's no way for you to see other than if you overflow, because you did put a liner underneath there, correct? A yeah, rubber but, liner? Yeah, yeah. So the rubber liner serves as a way to prevent um, any excess moisture from leaking out around the bottom of your tent unfortunately with the grassroot pots they fit perfectly in a four by four tent with no room for you to get your hand between the liner the pot itself and the tent so that's where i would suggested to you to, to set that piece of pipe because and it doesn't even have to be four inch it can be one inch and you basically take two styrofoam balls and a dowel and you drop that styrofoam well you take a styrofoam ball put put the dowel into it so that the ball stays on it and then take the other one and slide it down till it's about eight or ten inches above the bottom one and then you just drop that whole thing right into the tube and then as you water that little dowel is going to come up and you're going to be able to determine exactly how much water is being stored in your e-horizon and and never flood it because you actually know oh shit i've added 20 gallons to this thing um it's not leaking out where's my level and you'll say oh wow my level's at two and a half inches so it gives you a way to monitor um just how much water is actually being stored in your e or your aquifer because that's basically what you created is an aquifer 
And I, and I do recommend that you do that. And I'll, and I'll use that next time. So I'm at the point now that the only time that I can really check how much water is in my e-horizon is when I go to take a soil test and I dig in deep. I just go dig in extra deep all the way down to my e-horizon and put my hand there and see how much water is there. And, you know, that is not efficient at all. That's like, you know, testing my water, checking my water table once at the beginning of a run and once at the end of a run and twice a run, you know, it's worked out for me so far, but I do wish that I had that, that, um, that vertical tube, um, just stuck in one of the corners so I could check that out. Yeah. It just makes it easier. Yeah. Right on. So, okay. So, uh, so here we are at the end of set one. Um, we have gone through a, an explanation of the O horizon, the A horizon, the E horizon, both what I did and more how to think about it, right? Because this is kind of an algorithm and, you know, what you choose to use will vary and the size of your bed is going to be different. So your, um, uh, how you're, how much you need to make to fill up your sevenths, um, is going to be different. But, but more, we're just trying to make sure you understand the, the, the idea behind it so you can play out this algorithm for yourself. So, uh, uh Leighton, anything else you want to add to this before we go to break? No, I think you covered it. And, and again, you know, it's all about diversity. So, you know, colors are important. Textures are important. Um, using your local resources is very important. Um, if you have to buy something, you have to buy something. It's not the end of the world. But again, you know, you're looking for, uh, if you're buying sand, you want very coarse sand. So like masonry sand, um, you know, and as far as, you know, the rocks and stuff, uh, one, one piece that I do want to really kind of reiterate is that when you're, when you're putting those rocks in there, you don't have to fill all two and a half to three inches in rock. It can be, you know, one third rock and the rest can be sand, but make sure you wash the sand down into the rocks. You don't want to have any voids whatsoever. If you have voids, then organic matter is going to get down in there and it's going to go anaerobic. So the E-Horizon really functions as a what's called sand filter. So a sand filter is, uh, is generally used in, you know, golf courses to move groundwater around. Um, they can also be used in, in zoos to separate, um, water that has a lot of duck manure in it. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a technique that, that prevents organic matter or fine particulate from getting down into that, uh, water layer. So you're basically separating fine particulate from water itself. And that's the beauty of the E is that it acts as a, as a sand filter. And, and if you're interested in sand filters, I encourage you to go back to the Shaping Fire episode with um, Stephen Raisner about the water food web and how to use aquaponics with uh, living soil systems. We talk about that a little bit there. So, oh, and uh, Leighton, I wish you would have told me I didn't have to have three inches of all rocks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I missed that in my notes when we originally talked. So, Oh, no, that's all right. It's all a learning process. <laughs> it sure is. So, uh, so we're going to take our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. 
Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, Fast Buds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hembra cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit hembragenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. Cannabis folks are innovators and problem solvers, and we like to make money. Have you developed a tool, technique, or plant that you want to protect and monetize? You'll likely want legal representation that is experienced, accessible, and shares your values. Plant and Planet Law represents a wide variety of clients who choose to respect the environment while pursuing their business goals. Have you invented a machine or gizmo that you're bringing to market? Did you discover a breakthrough environmentally friendly pesticide or fertilizer formulation that you're about to start selling? Have you bred a cannabis plant with attributes not found anywhere else? Attorney Dale Hunt and his Plant and Planet team have established genetic patents in over 30 countries. Working to help entrepreneur scientists throughout the life sciences, Plant and Planet represents environmentally positive clients in cannabis and other botanicals, fungi, water purification, clean energy, emulsions, and medical applications. Plant and Planet helps people protect what they've created. If you are an early-stage company with an established idea and are in the process of fundraising, often the investors require intellectual property protections happen at the same time. Plant and Planet can be your sole representation, or they can integrate with your existing legal team and plug in their specialties. Plant and Planet is made of scientists, lawyers with a real passion for cannabis, inventions, and the environment. They have the scientific and legal depth to help you establish patent protections for your great idea. You don't have to go it alone. Friendly, qualified, and honorable legal representation is available to you. Contact Plant and Planet Law today to start the conversation. Email info at plantandplanet.com. That's Plant and Planet Law. Our clients make the planet better. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. 
The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. So, in the first set, we talked um, about um, how the horizons are actually set up and the and the, uh, how much of each. Um, in set two, we're going to start talking about um, how this uh, soil act, the uh, some of the attributes that it showed, and um, right off the bat, uh, the first attribute that it showed was uh, fungus gnats <laughs> and so um, you know it's funny there is a uh, there's a bro science thing that you know is, a, is is actually you know pretty good in a lot of cases which is don't bring your soil from outdoors indoors because when you bring in outdoor soil indoors you are bringing in a lot of variables you're bringing in potential pests you are probably you're all bringing in allies predator allies as well but you're bringing in just like a lot of variables because um, you don't know what's in it Um, but I really wanted to use my aged no-till soil that I've been using in my pots and amending for like the last five or six years this soil is just absolutely freaking fantastic so I was clear that I was going to bring outdoor soil indoors and uh, you know when I when I told that to a lot of my my peers they're like oh that's so dangerous and and yeah that it is dangerous but I was willing to go for it because I really wanted the living biology. So, um, brought in the soil, made the O horizon, um, put it on the, uh, the bed and then turned on my, uh, super sexy bios lighting LEDs. And, oh, it took about 24 hours for there to just be a sea of fungus gnats. They were everywhere. And, um, you know, it was a concern to see them, but I also didn't freak the hell out. I didn't have cannabis plants in there yet. Um, I expected things to get really excited when I took them from a cold outdoor environment because this was um, 
you know, during a, during the fall. So a lot of this stuff had already gone to sleep or cysted up. And when I suddenly put it in a, in a warm, full spectrum, 18 hours of light environment, like everything hatched, all the, all the bugs hatched their eggs uh, or, or similar. And so I had all of these fungus gnats. And so I'm like, okay, um, breathe and, and let's call Copert, right? Um, uh, Copert is where I get my beneficial insects from. So I, I called my uh, Copert rep and then I said, all right, um, I've got fungus gnats uh, and a whole hell of a lot of them. What can you send me? And so after asking me a bunch of questions and stuff, they decided on the Stratiolelops simitis. And for those of you who actually know the correct pronunciation you probably know that i butchered that but you know what i you know generally you know what i mean and these uh these stratiolelops simitis um they sent me a, a container of that but here's the deal um uh because of uh how the holidays laid by the time i asked them that that's what i needed it was going to take them 10 days to get it to me um because they ship out once a week and so I'm like, all right, great. Please send me that stuff. And in the meantime, I called my buddy Layton to bitch about this and complain. And I'm like, oh, dude, you know, um, I got, I've got all of these, um, these fungus gnats. And, um, and why don't you, why don't you take up, pick up the, the storyline here, Layton? What, what did you tell me to use? <laughs> yeah, so... <clears throat> It was really funny. You you called me and was like, "What the hell? What am I gonna do?" And I'm like, "Hey, do you still have that rejuvenate I sent you?" Um, and you're like, "Yeah, I think so. Uh, is it any good?" And I'm like, "Well, did it dry out?" And you're like, "Let me go check." And you came back and said, "No, it's still still moist." I'm like, "All right, just whip it up a tea and pour it across the surface as evenly as you possibly can, and watch." So, and so what, what is the rejuvenate? Back. What is the rejuvenate? To- it's just a, uh, it's another one of the products uh, that I make, and it's just basically like an instant compost tea. It's it's very very fine particulate that when you add to water, just makes the water look you know dirty like chocolate. It's got a lot of turbidity in it, so um, it's just a simple easy way to uh, instantly make a very biologically diverse tea uh for situations like this (laughs) and then you called me back and said what is this sorcery that you did (laughs) it is true because like i i took i took the rejuvenate i added water i shook it up i evenly um applied it across the soil and not 36 hours later there wasn't a single fungus gnat none and i went from having like all the fungus gnats in the world to having none of the fungus gnats and I did and I actually did say what is this sorcery because something had changed and and at first I thought that perhaps there was something caustic in it somehow to fungus gnats and and um and I had done something to the fungus gnats like a some sign of pesticide but why did all the fungus gnats actually go away well, you you created a very um, aggressive uh, environment that that they became a food source very very quickly. And you know, in that rejuve, you're going to have all different types of nematodes, um, which is probably the best way to eradicate fungus gnats. Not the not the little predatory mites, um, although they do help. Um, the nematodes will work right in the soil and 
and just eat the eggs as fast as they can lay them. So that's another little trick that um, if you can get really good biocomplete or biologically rich compost uh, and you make a tea, you're going to um, create a, a much more balanced environment where one thing can't outrun um, the others. Uh, it's just too competitive. So, so Leighton, you know, uh, I love your products, no doubt. Um, um, but that being said, you know, not everybody's not is going to want to contact you and get your stuff. So, so I ask this question: If somebody is 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 the secret to it to just have really well finished, biologically active compost, and then make an unaerated uh, compost tea extract. Will that work in most cases, even if it's not your product? Oh, absolutely. And, and it goes back to how to make compost. And so there's a lot of recipes out there, but I like the real simple approach, which is basically collect greens and browns off your own property um, I don't add manures I don't hit temperature um, if it goes if it hits 115 I flip it because anytime you get over 120 you're losing biodiversity if you hit 130 you are in what's called a thermophilic uh, process in other words you, everything is getting cooked off and when you get to that level it's going to take year if not two for all that biology to naturally come back in. Um, so a quick way to do this is to never let it get over 115, and, you, and that's fine as long as you're just using plants. If you start playing with manures, you're going to have problems. So um, basically I make vegan compost, um, collecting you know one-third greens, one, uh, two-thirds browns, and I make the browns and greens as diverse as I possibly can. Basically in the greens, you're looking for endophytic biology so bio, bio uh, biology that lives inside the tissue of the plant um, we know for sure that that biology can come out of that plant um, and into your compost pile um, if you put enough um, enough of them in there and and again you're looking for diversity so I, I'm picking little green shoots off all the plants that I can find and all different types and and flowers and and shrubs and you name it um, and then the browns is the same I'm looking for different types of wood chips different types of brown leaves different types of dead stalks of plants um, and and using all of that to make this stuff and then it's just a matter of soaking it down like apply as much water as you possibly can until it's just running out of the bottom of it and then put a thermometer in it and watch and usually within 24 hours if you've a uh, blended the greens and browns appropriate within 24 48 hours you're going to see it heat up and if you do that and and then it goes to say 115 and then starts to cool off you have it all you got to do is take that stuff put it in a compound uh, five gallon bucket with a uh, low speed drill uh, like a plaster or paint mixer and just you know throw you know, a gallon of the compost in there, uh, fill it, fill the rest, you know, half full of water and then blend it and then pour it on. You're, you've just released all that biology. So there's a trick for you to make your own inoculant at home. Fantastic, dude. Thank you. So in the end, um, the sorcery of uh, getting rid of these fungus gnats was a um, a well-made compost that was filled with nematodes and other microbiology and when i put it um 
uh, over the top of the soil, suddenly there were all these predators of fungus gnat larvae. And so, you know, their life cycle is very short. And so it took a very short period of time for all of those little hungry micro- microbiologies in the compost to go and eat the next uh, couple generations of uh, fungus gnats. And Zim Zam, that's it. Sorcery. <laughs> All right. Thanks for explaining that. So yeah, yeah. So moving on, um, uh, I I don't know that you know. A lot of times when I ask ask you questions, I'm setting you up stuff that I actually understand. You know, and you know, I'm asking you the question, but I'm kind of asking it for the audience. This is one that uh, I'm going to be asking for me too because I I actually don't know your answer. Um, when we explained. Um, this uh, whole process, the the philosophy behind it in um, uh, the biomimicry shaping fire episode number 54. And then with all of the uh, companion materials that I was posting to Instagram of my own bed, um, some folks were were um, commenting some concern that this was not going to work right, that this was going to end up in a perched water table. And, um, and it was interesting because like, you know, some of the some of the angry boys were all getting themselves all bent out of shape about it, um, whereas other people were having like you know adult conversations, and and they were all interesting, and um and and in the end when I taught when I came back to you and I said, dude, you know people are arguing on Instagram about this perched water table, um you know, is this going to be a problem? And you're like, no, 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 no. This is a, this is a misunderstanding. And then you explained it to me and, and I, and I still do not understand it. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing you explain it again. So for, 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 for those people who were con- a either concerned about it creating a perched water table or B people who want to give this a try and their friends may give them hassle about a perched water table will you go through it uh in in simple terms so that we can all understand why why this does not apply to this particular horizon style growing system that you've shared with us yeah absolutely shango so i think it was in the 60s um soil engineers were trying to figure out what the best way to build a high performance sports turf uh for both you know football, baseball, golf, you name it. And they actually created the perched water table. And what it was, was basically they put a liner down um, and put a layer of gravel. And then on top of that, compacted sand down. And then they rolled out their sod. The reason they did this was because they wanted to have a surface like a putting green that you could walk across, but you could still roll a ball perfectly without having it bounce all over the place. And also you needed to be able to walk across this um, in case of a, you know, a heavy rain event without it turning to muck. And so there's very, very little organic matter and hardly any uh, silt or clay in these types of uh, high-performance sports turf. Um, so there's not a lot of, of ability to store water or to um, and, and an ability to get rid of it just as fast. So it goes back to that filling a bucket up with sand. And, and again, I encourage people to do that and notice how much water comes in that it, it, it holds. Um, and 
the other side of this, if you take the bucket and cut the bottom out and then put it directly on soil and then fill the bucket, you know, half full of sand and then add water, come back a couple days later and that sand is still wet. So it shows you how much um, capillary action, uh, wicking that the sand can do. So somewhere along the line, some horticulturist or, uh, I don't know, plant um, gardener um, was talking about whether to put gravel or shards of clay in the bottom of their pot and somehow confused the perched water table with, with what happens in soilless mediums or potting mixes um, in that environment. And that that goes back to why I came up with the horizontal system for the cannabis industry in the first place was because when you're using a potting mix, the bottom is going to go anaerobic and the top is going to be hydrophobic. And because it's a low tension soil, the capillary action and the ability to wick is not really there. So um, that's, that's the misnomer. That's the problem is that you know, again, somewhere along the line, somebody said, "Oh, well, if I throw gravel in the bottom of my pot, that'll help me from from getting this anaerobic environment." And use the word "perched water table" when "perched water table" has nothing to do with potting soil. It's really talking about how to make a high performance sports turf. And again, so when you're comparing a pot full of potting mix to a horizontal soil system, that's like looking at a tomato versus a cantaloupe they're not even close so you know again do your homework um really read up on on where perch soil table uh, perch water tables come from uh it was not from the horticultural industry or the or the gardening industry um that's just somewhere someone along the line got took one term and applied it to something that's completely different I want to ask you about the, uh, you said that in, in, when people don't use an e-horizon at the bottom with sand and rocks, um, and, and they're using, um, top to bottom a, uh, you know, a soil, um, blend of some sort that the bottom, of the of the container is going to go anaerobic and and is the idea that um the reason why it's going to go anaerobic is because you've essentially got a pot that's entirely o horizon there is an o a and e horizons it's all just o horizon it's all organic matter and so when you water it um you know the water will go through and certainly there will be some mobility of water but really that water is going to collect at the bottom, just like it does in any biology with a water table. And, and since you've got sitting water in, in organic matter, it just kind of rots, which is why, since we know this is how water performs in, in, in a horizon-style living soil container, we put sand and rocks at the bottom because they can hold the water from your watering. They can hold the water without rotting. Is that the right idea? Correct. Correct. Okay. And the A horizon will help because it's not low tension. Um, it's actually high-tension soil. Um, it will help uh, to pull the water out of the horizon and move it up into the O horizon as the top dries out and pulls the water up. 
And so, will you talk a little bit about that? Would you talk a little bit about water mobility? Um, yeah, so we so talked has, about. Hold on, hold on, before you do that, yep. um, we talked about this at length in the water and watering episode we did. So, if the idea of how to water your plants and how how to understand how water uh, moves around in the container, if you're like really nerding out about this, go back to the Shaping Fire episode with Layton called Water and Watering because we go at this for like a half hour but for those of us who are you know just interested in indoor growing and and hearing this debrief on this on this regenerative tent please continue Layton <laughs> <laughs> so so water does a couple things right so you look at your um, soilless medium your your compost your um, peat or pit or um, you know, whatever you're adding in there, and you're going to get what's called fines. So fines are really small particulate that when the water hits them, the water will actually move them down in in the pot due to gravitational forces. So as all those fines move down to the bottom of the pot, you end up making a swamp at the bottom of your pot. Um, so now all of that water is being held by those fines um, because they are high tension, um, whereas the rest of the fibers are more low tension, and therefore you have more aeration, you have the ability for roots to really push through that stuff very e- easily, which is why that's used to grow cannabis. That uh, was traditionally used and still is used to grow cannabis to this day, um, because it has that ability for if you feed the plant, the roots are going to go crazy. Uh, easily expand and and obviously you're going to see the effect at the top where the plant comes out of the ground so that being said that's why um you know these soilless mediums or super soils will have that issue is that as you water you're moving all the fines to the bottom where they're going to collect and and compact and and store water whereas with the horizontal system your sand filter will prevent any fines from getting down there um, and will if your fines do move down from your O horizon, they're just going to naturally blend in with the A horizon because it too is preventing that easy uh, ability for those fines to migrate through the soil system. You know, that's that's always been an issue in, in engineering soils, which I used to do quite a bit of, well, I still do, um, was preventing that fines from moving down and collecting um, and then creating what would be considered uh, you know, an impervious surface or, or layer where the water can no longer move down. It has to start moving laterally um, or horizontally. And that's, that, again, is, is causing all kinds of problems. Um, you really want everything to just move through and again, that's why this system works so well is because it, it functions both in ability to store water, prevent it from going anaerobic, um, while preventing the overall soil system from collapsing or, or causing these um, layers to build up. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Yeah. So moving right along, let's, um, let's, let's move to uh, start talking about soil tests now, Leighton. So grab your soil test there. So I got a couple things to say <coughs> before we move into this topic. <coughs> so we're going to, we're going to talk about soil tests for about 
I don't know, the next 10 minutes or so probably end up being 15, but but this is going to be the last thing that we talk about here in set two. So if we start talking about the soil tests and your eyes start to glaze over and uh, don't don't just leave the show because set three is really great. Uh, set three, we're going to be talking about um, uh, cover crops, um, how and how often to water scrogging and, and mushrooms and companion plants, right? So the third set's going to be really great, but a lot of people um, just are not interested with with the details from from uh, a soil report. So so if we are about to lose you, don't go anywhere. Just skip ahead to set three and and start listening again. Now, for those of you who are interested in the soil tests, this is what we're going to do. Um, uh, if you want to see the soil test that Leighton and I are talking about, um, you can find it on the um, the page for this episode uh, at shapingfire.com. Um, that's easy. Uh, and and then you know you could you could hit pause right now and go get that and then and then play along with us at home. Um, or you can look at it afterwards. But but just to be clear, we're not going to go way in depth into the soil report. Um, uh, this is not a show about soil reports. Um, but but Layton is going to give his uh, overview of it and and mention what stands out for him. So we're going to kind of do this like cursory thing. The goal of this is for us to not only encourage you to get soil tests. Um, I really like Logan Labs. Um, uh, they are who I have used. They are not a sponsor of the show, and I don't get any money from them. It's just who Layton recommended uh, back last year, and I used them and they've been great. So anyway, if you're looking for a lab, Logan Labs is great. Um, uh, but we're going to. Be, this is all to inform a discussion we're going to have about um, the beginning soil test and the ending soil test and how to compare them. All right. So with that and with the soil report in hand, um, Leighton, you've got it in your hand now. And so we're looking at the column uh, that's labeled start. So so what this is a test of is the test of the, the bed after I built it and after I had been watering it for three weeks um, just by itself so that everything, the biology could start to get accustomed to this, you know, being indoors, being in horizon level, um, uh, uh, you, know, uh, ha- you know, being under lights. And, and so, uh, so this, why don't you explain to us what you see in uh, soil test one, which is essentially the before I grew cannabis in it test. Sure. So um, usually what I'll do is I'll start with pH. Um, you're 6'4", that's you know fine, that's not a big issue. Um, then I'll bounce up to um, total ca- uh, exchange capacity, which we would call CEC. Um, here you're in the high 20s or mid-20s, which is fantastic. Um, then we bounce down to organic matter. We have a very high organic matter content, 40. Four two percent, which is fantastic, um, and then I'll start looking down at um, what's called your um, trace elements, which are very very important. Um, everything seems to be pretty much in range. Your iron's a little high, no big deal. Um, aluminum's a little high, but again, that's not going to be a problem unless you get into a low pH situation. Um, look at your nitrates, 356. That means there's a tremendous amount of natural organic N available in this soil um, that the biology can break down and release uh, as a, a plant food. Um, so those all look pretty good. Uh, then I'll bounce over to what's called the saturated paste test, which is probably one of the most important um, aspects of looking at a soil and its ability to function. So if you look down 
under percent, you'll see calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium, right? So generally speaking, that, that ratio should be calcium 75, magnesium 17, potassium 8, sodium 0. Um, in this case, you have low calcium. Um, your magnesium is way too high, and your potassium is a little hot. Um, but look at your sodium, 12. Um, so you're losing a lot of potential because that sodium is stuck on that cation exchange site instead of those primary minerals. And we can talk a little bit more about where to get some of these uh, wonderful new organic um products that are basically 4% calcium. So if you have calcium and you add it, you will bump potassium and sodium off the exchange site. Um, uh, calcium is, is what we call a double bond, so it has two positive charges, and potassium and sodium only have one. Magnesium has two as well, so you have to be careful about CalMag. It's so funny. Um, oh, I, was, I was about to say, I'm like, it's so funny. You're telling me I need to bump my calcium and my magnesium. I'm like, oh Jesus, is the actual solution to this more CalMag? Because <laughs> we all know, no. I mean, that that is the joke, right? Yeah, right. I know more cowbell, right? That was that was everybody in the cannabis industry laughs about that because it's it's that was what people did was they just pounded it with freaking CalMag. Um, and in this case, if you put any more magnesium on here, you're going to cause way more problems. So you really just want pure calcium, and then you're going to let the plant work through the mag high magnesium. And by the end of the run, um, you'll see that that magnesium came down a little bit. Um, and your calcium actually went up in, in end endo one report but anyway so that those are the those are the things and then underneath the percent i'm again looking at trace minerals um trace elements so trace elements and um are, are really really important for some of the finite plant processes so you know its ability to fight disease uh to accept sunlight um the ability to push nitrogen and calcium through its whole system. You know, molybdenum is one of those really, really important ones. So again, you know, looking at, at the, the start, um, you know, everything looked okay. Uh, I don't see, you know, anything that really jumps out and f scares me. Um, toward the end of the run, um, all of a sudden now we're, we've lost a, a lot of nutrients. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as, as things uh, go forward. <laughs> no, let's 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 move right to that right now. So, so so you're looking at the start, and so I had a pretty good start. I had, yeah, you had I, a great start. I, I had a nice variety of nutrients, and I was really happy with all the natural uh, organic matter um, um, that we had. So so then you know I go and I do the run. Right, I grew uh, five plants in that in that uh, tent, which we'll talk more about in um, the next set. But I grew I grew uh, five plants. Um, they. They, uh, they vegged for um, uh, like four and a half weeks or so. Uh, I did the flip. Um, they and then I grew uh, varieties that uh, were ready around week um, nine. Uh, took nine weeks, and so uh, so here we were at the end. I harvest, and then I take another soil sample because I wanted to learn um, how much nutrition um, I should expect plants to use, and I was also um, planning on uh, reamending before my next cycle. So, Layton, let's go through this again. Um, what do you? see in the soil report now after I've grown a cycle of cannabis? So look at organic matter percent. It went down by four solid points, a little bit more than four points. Then you bounce back up to cation exchange capacity. 
that too dropped um, pretty significantly. You dropped by five plus points. So what that indicates to me is that your organic matter was your primary source of cation exchange or the ability to store nutrients in your soil. So in that regard, you know, I would encourage you to top dress with a little bit more compost um, so that you're putting those exchange sites back into play because they're, as they get broken down from compost to silt, you're losing um, the positive charges um, that would have been holding those nutrients. So that's that's one interesting thing. But but the, what, the drops that you're seeing though, even even though you know we do want to replenish, and that's the whole point of reamending. Um, these are drops that uh, would be typical and expected after growing a cycle of cannabis. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. But this is giving you exactly what you're missing. If you're, you know, if you're paying attention to it, I, I, I like know, that it's I, also showing that the system is functioning, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like oh, I grew plants and now everything's out of whack. It's like oh no, this is what we would expect if you grew a proper living soil plant. Mm-hmm. And, but it also gives you the direction on what you need to make sure that you're putting back into play. Um, and again, you know, if people get so overwhelmed at looking at these reports, and it's like, no, you don't need all of this. Um, this would be for someone who's, you know, very, very uh, heavy into soil science. Really, all you're looking at is exchange capacity, organic matter, trace elements, and then your um, your true. Um, saturated paste percentage like if if you look at um like for instance the soluble cations right it says calcium is up at 62 magnesium at 41 potassium at 41 sodium at 25 then you drop down to percentage they're not they don't match up they're not even close so that's where you have to understand that that soluble means that it's potentially plant available, whereas um, the percent actually represents what's being held on the cation exchange sites, which which are a better think of it as a battery for your soil. So I mean, look at your soluble cations. Uh, calcium at start was sixty two, which is great, and at the end <laughs> four point five. That means you've got you gobbled up a tremendous amount of calcium in that run, but then you drop down a percent, you look at calcium and it's 35.64 and it actually went up to 39.96. So what that says is that as the calcium that was in the soluble cation or, or plant available, um, some of that fell down and attached to the cation exchange sites. So so that's a good thing. And look at your magnesium. Your magnesium after at the end was dropped all the way down to 25.62, which again is like the system is functioning. It's, it's going in the right direction. It's balancing it out, balancing itself out. Um, potassium went from 12.34 all the way down to 4.24. And worse, the sodium was at 12.6, went up to 30.18. So that indicates to me that perhaps you either have high levels of salt in your water um, that you're using to water the plant, um, or you used a nutrient that had a salt base. So, you know, we talk about mineral salts versus organic nutrients, right? There's still going to be salts in organic nutrients. Um, the organic 
organic nutrients are harder to break down, which is why you need a tremendous amount of um, good biological diversity um, to make those available. But as the biology pulls things off, it's going to leave behind the salts. And this is where it goes back to, oh, flush. Flushing is a good thing. Using excess water, or <laughs> I used to call it, right, I said it originally as, oh, just waterboard that bit. <laughs> you <laughs> oh, hated it. <laughs> yeah, this is true. And forced me to rename it into a rain event. <laughs> <laughs> Heavy rain event. Heavy rain event. So bottom line, in this, in this situation, what I'd probably recommend is that you do a, a major rain event at the end of the cycle so that you push those salts down uh, into, the, into the E horizon where they can naturally build up down there and, and, and they won't cause a problem. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of the, the, the gist and the interesting things that, that have happened. All right. So before, before you move on, you said a whole bunch of provocative stuff. So, so let's start with um, the, the how much sodium there is. Now, what I would like to understand is when, uh, when we look at the, the cation uh, exchange section, it, it says that the sodium started at 181 and finished at 117. So that looks like the sodium decreased. And, and when we originally talked about it, you said, aha, this shows that there were no added salts in your, um, in your inputs. And I was all happy, right? Because I'm not using you know, salt-based bottles and stuff. And, I, and, and you said, yeah, you're not adding any salts. But then, but then when we look at the, the, the soluble cations where, where, you're, where you're having us look that they, or excuse me, the percent, it went up. How come it looks like sodium went down in the cation section, but the percentage went up? They seem to be um, contrasting in their indications. Well, no, actually they're not. See, soluble means that it's mobile or available. And percentage means it's bound to a cation exchange site. So it goes back to, think of that clay platelet as a little flying saucer. And around the outside of that flying saucer is 100 parking spots. Um, that's, that's your battery. You've got 100 little pieces of these primary nutrients, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. So when the sodium started in insoluble cations at 25.23 and dropped all the way to 3.91 during the cycle, well, they went somewhere, right? They went down to percentage. Those, those solubles, those, those salts that were released are now stuck on your uh, cation, or stuck on your clay platelet um, and being stored. And we, we don't want them stored there. We, we want them mobile and we want them moving. We want to get rid of them or, or let them naturally break down because there are some uh, bacteria that can uh, actually start breaking salt apart. So that being said, they just moved. They went from one place to another place. You follow me? I do. I do. So <clears throat> all sodium is not the same on the test. Um, again, you're looking at what's being stored. The percent is what's being stored on the cation exchange site and the soluble cations are the ones that are more mobile in the soil so they, they can they can move they either can get used up very quickly or they can wash through the soil profile all right fantastic so um so let's move on to our our third soil report that we're going to hit real fast so this is this is where things get a little iffy my dear listener um so um i guess i'm kind of throwing myself under the bus here um 
So after seeing this uh, report, the second one, uh, showing me how much nutrition I used, um, I told Layton that uh, I was a big fan. I, I continue to be a good fan of the um, the Kiss Organics um, nutrient pack. And uh, Tad has put a lot of effort into uh, making a, a, a wide-ranging blended amendment that you can just buy a bucket of and and add to your soil as, as amendment and it, it will just amend like all your different categories and it just makes things really simple also if you're an ultra nerd for this um they tad at kiss organics they will also custom blend you a nutrient pack as well and he actually offered that to do that for me but i said you know dude i want to i want to practice with what what's bought right off the shelf. I don't want to get the custom stuff, but I will let people know that that's available. So that's why I'm telling you. So, so what I did is I, I followed the, the directions on the label and um, I added my 18 cups of, uh, of, of nutrient pack uh, to the top and I watered it in and then I covered it with some, um, uh, from an- another, some more soil from, uh, from outside and um, watered it in and kind of walked away from it. I figured, okay, you know, I'm doing a fall harvest of my outdoor. Um, you know, I can just let this soil sit for a while and, um, and just let it, you know, just water it in, right? And just, just, I don't know, let it do biology. And so I was about three days into that and I, and I called Leighton to let him know that I had done this. And he was like, oh, dude, you can't, you can't just let the bed sit there. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's all like, well, are the lights off? I'm like, well, yeah, the lights are off. I want to save money. He's like, yeah, he's all like the, the bed is alive because of the light. And if you turn off the light and if there are no plants in the bed, you are just kind of like choking all of the biology off and, and it's not going to be cycling and ready when you transplant in plants. And I'm like, whoa, mind blown. And, <laughs> and so I realized that I needed to plant the bed so that plants would grow so that when I was ready to replant it, you know, and focus more on it in a few weeks after we harvested outdoor. So the plant, the, the bed would be ready to go. And so I'm like, oh, so. I turned back on the lights, um, you know, not at full power, but, you know, enough that the bed was going to get lights. And and I put in a bunch of flowers and onions and strawberries and um, chives and, uh, you know, just a whole bunch of things. And uh, uh, basil, I just like bought that living basil from the store and threw that in there. And so, you know, these were all temporary plants. These weren't plants that I was going to keep very long, but they were all plants that I was going to grow and then chop and then cover with uh, more soil and then and then plant my cannabis in three weeks when I was done with harvest. So that's what I did. And it was actually really cool. And and for those of you who follow on the Instagram, you got to see all the pictures of these, you know, you know, be beautiful strawberry blonde calendula and the, the pink dandelions and the strawberries I was eating out of there and the onions. It was really great to be producing food for myself out of this indoor tent. So that was all really cool. However, it was time to get a um, an, another soil test, right? Because I wanted to see and, and and ensure that the that the amendments that I had used had brought up my numbers again, and I was ready to grow cannabis. 
So I took my test, I sent it into Logan Labs, I got it back, and I was disappointed because the numbers were lower than I expected. But I had done everything right. And so um, I went back to Layton, and I'm all like, Layton, you know, why aren't these numbers higher? You know, I know this product works. It, it raised, it's raised my numbers before, but it didn't this time. And he's all like, well, you were growing plants in there, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got great food and plant. And he's like, dude, they were taking up more of your nutrition. It's not like the beds there stopping its uptake of nutrition just because you didn't have cannabis plants in there. And I went, oh. And so I had both amended the bed, waited a while because I was busy doing other things, and then tested it. And I had used up most, if not all, of the amendments that I had put in there um, three months earlier. And so this was a life lesson for me. And so um, I have to remember that all these companion plants I'm using are, are actively pulling on the nutrition as well. And like, you know, in retrospect, that's like totally obvious. Um, so, so looking at my time frame, Leighton, um, what do you think the time frame should be between like you end the cycle, I take the test, I get back my results, I add my nutrient pack. How long should I wait? Like how long should I be watering in those amendments and let them settle before I replant with cannabis plants? And um, uh, I guess that's the question. How long should I water that stuff in before I put in the cannabis plants? Well, I mean, it, again, you're you're continuing to grow plants throughout the cycle. So even though it's not cannabis, now it's called a, a resting bed where you've got you know other plants in there that are are you know keeping the soils the living soil system alive. So you really want to um, again, if you're going to plant in three weeks, you know, take another soil test and and. Now, you, again, you'll know what your companions or your foods that you grew in there um, have taken out. Or, or be proactive and understand that your, your numbers are going to continue to go down. I mean, if you look at like primaries, nitrate and aluminum, in the beginning of the cycle, you, know, you were at 356 for nitrates uh, and ammonia was at um, 6.2 at the end of the cycle you were down to 89.5 in the nitrate and 0.08 in the uh, ammonium and then bounce over to the one that you just took um, and your nitrates are at 18.2 so they've continued to go down and your ammonia is at 0.3 so you really need uh, a good source of nitrogen in this thing bad like you know i don't know how much pig's blood you tend to use traditionally but i would say whatever you were using you need to double it for now uh, right. to get these numbers back up to where they need to be so and that and that's true with the molybdenum um, as i pointed out before the you know that's down to less than 0.02 and that's a critical um trace for um you know, plant function. So again, you know, these are giving you things that you need to know as tools. Um, how how best to amend next? Um, again, you're going to need a good source of calcium. Um, you could use a slow release, uh, you know, oyster shell flour, um, or you could use like a liquid calcium source, like Hortical, which is an organic. 
uh, 4% calcium that also acts as a nitrogen. Now, this gets really complex, so I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but the interaction between calcium and nitrogen is a really interesting one and not one that is often talked about. Um, if you look back at some of uh, Rudolf Steiner's work in the 20s, he talks about um, these in forms that don't really make sense. He's talking about ethereal and terrestrial planes, and it's really what he's talking about is nitrogen and calcium and the relationship they have. So those would be the, the starting points um, that I would really encourage you to uh, focus on. I mean, uh, soluble calcium went from 62 down to 4.5 after the end of the run. Um, with your most recent test, um, your calcium went back up to 37.58. So obviously, whatever you amended had a good source of, of calcium. But again, you're going you're gonna to want more. I mean, in the percentages stuck on your cat and exchange site, remember that that number I just gave you for calcium was soluble. So it's mobile and it's, it's one of the nutrients that you've added. Whereas if you look down on your, um, your percentages, your cation exchange sites, you're down to 31.94. So you've lost again, um, you know, your, your ability to store those, store that stuff uh, on a, on a, a cation exchange site. So that's why it's really important that you get a more mobile liquid uh, source of calcium to help to, to bump off the potassium which is 27 way too high bump the sodium off which is 11.41 so that good calcium liquid calcium source is really going to help you a lot in, in getting this this bed back to a wonderful or a um, a good place for for the next run so so i think the the main lesson that i've learned from this is <clears throat> uh number one uh don't do your soil test until you're ready to transplant your cannabis plants and put them in there. Because mm -hmm. after you have done, you, you, you do your test and then you do your amendments and then you add your plants. Whereas what I did is I did my test, did my amendments, and then I waited a month with resting plants in there that was eating up nutrition and throwing me back off balance. And then I went to, I, uh, then I went to add my plants and it was no longer as robust as I wanted it to be. And at that point I needed to do another test and then re-amend. So I screwed myself with that resting period. Like, <laughs> I, and like, certainly I have, I lost, you know, yield per year as well. And I don't think I'll do that resting period again. Yeah. I would say that, you know, the, the interesting thing was that you you saw what what the goal is. You saw what you started with, and you saw what you ended with. And so I agree with you. I think that starting and getting that test is critical. And then once you're ready to plant your cannabis plants, like two to three weeks, three to four weeks before you're ready to plant your cannabis plants, then do your ending test because you had that resting period where you, those the onions and those other. Um, cover crops and companion plants gobbled up more nutrients. So I think that, you know, I'm glad you did this because you're really seeing what's happening here. And even though you amended, you still lost more nutrient. So again, you know, lesson learned. Start, test, and just, you know, three weeks to four weeks before planting the next run, that's when you want to do your, your ending test so that you can figure out what you need to put in play uh, for the next run. And again, you know, even if the nutrients are, are you know, 
like organic form again like a an oyster meal flour uh or you know feather meal or whatever um that you're putting in into play you can plant right after that you you don't have what's called the cook down phase which is what super soils do is they you know they basically blend you all these high nutrients and then they say don't use it right away because you're going to burn your plant if you try to plant in it you got to let it cook off and basically what's happening is you're going into a thermophilic process where organic and nitrogen and carbon are being eaten and broken down and you're releasing ammonia um, which is another form of nitrogen because they've they've broken it apart um, as a gas so you're losing you're losing nutrient value um, in that process but if you again if you don't allow the biology to break it down or, or bust it into a more um, usable pieces then it's going to kill your plant so you have to do that but in in the case of your situation where you're just amending with with hard organic nutrients um, other than the pig's blood that's a little different um these nutrients are going to stay in play in the soil for a longer period of times they're not they're not soluble um but they're not they're not mobile either they're 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 bound up in in their um in their raw form which makes them kind of slow release yes exactly till the biology breaks them down and and that's good because the plant will actually say hey you know i don't need any of that right now so i'm not going to feed this exudate for this bacteria to break that down but i will when i come to a point in the in my growth cycle where i need it then i'll release exudates i'll grow out those bacterials and i'll mine that source of nutrient Right on. All right. Well, thank you for going through that 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 arduous soil report situation with me, uh, Leighton. And um, so let's go ahead and take our last break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about um, uh, some a, a little less technical stuff like uh, like cover crops and scrogging. You are listening to Shaping Fire, uh, and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. We'll be right back. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. 
There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations, including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco-coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's P-I-T-T. M-O-S-S dot com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pit Moss. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning blueberry muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Landrace. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant.
Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is soil biologist Leighton Morrison. So, Leighton, here we are, third set, bringing it all on home. So, the first thing I want to point out is how many plants to grow in this environment. And, you know, with all of the nutrition, with us being able to add more if we want to, it's not really the, um, the, the amount of nutrition that is going to be limiting the number of plants we could have. What's going to end up limiting it is the space we're going to have. Um, and so against all of the good opinion I got from all of my friends, um, I grew five plants in a four by four tent and everybody's all like, what the hell are you doing? This is just going to overgrow the tent so bad. And for me, I was more interested in, um, uh, flavor variety than necessarily like yield, right? I wanted I wanted to grow five different tastes, five different flavors, just for my own head. Because like I'm not growing the stuff to sell; I'm just growing the stuff to smoke. And so while I uh, while I understood that five plants was probably going to impact my yield because the plants were really competing, I didn't really care all that much. But I do agree, five plants is too many. It was just too many. They were growing on top of each other, um, and so I was growing a lot of plant matter that never finished because it had other plants growing over the top of it, especially because one of them was the Bicket OG. And the Bicket OG, the uh, G- GMO um, um, uh, cherry pie cross from Nick Risden, it is a beast. It turned my tent into a freaking cage match, and it just wanted to overgrow everything else. So I had to continually trim it down during veg, and then even after um, flower, it was just trying to climb over everything. So I've kind of learned my lesson, and I'm going down to four plants um, for this for this next round, which is pro- still probably too many. But again, I want the flavors, and I'm going to scrog it. So if I fail again, so be it. So let's talk about uh, cover crops. So the the cover crops that I liked uh, the most is uh, primarily for cover crops. I use Dichondra repens, which is a uh, a very short, about one inch ground cover. It's a green plant, and it's commonly used in between the bricks of fancy driveways. You know, sometimes they have those ornamental, uh, you know, paver bricks, and uh, and you know, so you can drive your car on your driveway. But then you know, there's this beautiful pattern and so they're very resilient they hold their own water and you know they just grow thousands of these individuated plants so so that's pretty cool and i also did everbearing alpine strawberries because i wanted to be able to eat from them i you did some flowers including pink dandelions and strawberry blonde calendula and it was just fun right <clears throat> the thing of the thing though um, that I was not planning on, though, was when the scrog filled up. But before we start talking trash about about how the scrog um, acted on the cover crops, Leighton, will you please explain the importance of companion planting from the perspective of, number one, uh, the various roots of the plants talking to each other, and then number two, helping fight um, uh, the surface from becoming hydrophobic? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the, the cover crops are, are amazing in the re- in, in the regard that they um, create a microclimate right on the surface of the soil. So the soil's not getting dried out due to the wind. It's you know the air moving that you're having the tent, um, and it's also preventing the the lights from from 
cooking the the biology on the surface of the soil um, and it's it's literally as the water evaporates it's hitting the bottom of these little leaves and then dripping back down onto the soil again so in many ways you're you're allowing a natural little um, micro ecosystem to occur um, right at the surface soil now now what's going on underneath the soil is even more important because yeah everything is communicating especially if you have uh, mycorrhizae fungi um, the amount of work <laughs> there's some amazing things that we are learning uh, at, at an incredibly fast pace about mycorrhizae and some of these other plant interactions and how they communicate with each other through the movement of, of um, different chemistry that's, that's happening in, in the mycorrhizae. Uh, we now know that there are certain bacteria that will actually enter into the mycorrhizae and transfer from to different plants um and also on the outside is is a super highway of of all kinds of you know bacteria as well as predators you know like amoebas and flagellates so you know again there's just like whole think of it as the internet like a whole web um that is being provided that's providing transportation of both nutrient mineral and biology back and forth between these plants um so yeah that that interaction between roots and um biology uh is is critical for for let me ask you this did you have any pests even though you had that tent packed with with plants no <clears throat> i actually didn't have any pests um <clears throat> sorry um uh none of them during the actual uh growing experience right like if, if if you asked me the day that i ended i would have said i had no pest pressure and i tribute that in my head mostly to the fact that um i i worked with my consultant from uh copert uh, beneficial insects and i placed beneficial insects in the tent that were preventatives. And so <clears throat> I assumed that that is why I got through this run with no pests. That said, when I went through and I harvested and I went through and I um, trimmed, I found two sun leaves that were face to face with a slight slit, you know, like normally where you'll see like, um, uh, spiders living, you know, like a little hut. And I found like <clears throat> maybe a hundred aphids in there. And I was startled. I'm like, where the hell did these aphids come from? I didn't see them anywhere else in the tent. But they had set up a home just in, in between these two leaves. And so technically there were pests there, but they but there was like nearly no pest pressure. Why? I do not understand. Well, I would attribute that to a healthy biological system and and healthy plants that are are strong and resistant. Um, yeah, they went. Oh, all that to makes one sense too because yeah, they, they all went. The aphid, the, the place where they grew, it was in between two leaves from one of the plants that was suffering by being overgrown by the Bicket OG. There you go. There you go. Hmm. So they'll find a place that's weakest and then try to you know grow out in in that place and then you know get a population big enough that they can attack other healthier plants but again you know if plant health um if the plants are healthy enough they will deter pests and i think in many ways you had that 
because of the way you grew, um, the level of biology that you had in there because of what happened with the uh, fungus gnats. I mean, that was a real indicator that you put in a very diverse inoculant that's present now. And you will see it again in, in this next run. And let me ask you another hard question. How, how did your plants turn out? Oh, it, they were the best plants that I've ever grown in my life, period. I mean, on one hand, duh, because outside in the Pacific Northwest where I live, we start to get cold and rains the last week of September, first week of October. And most eight-week plants need to go at least until the middle of October here. And so we don't finish outdoor plants, really, um, you know, coastal Pacific Northwest. And so all of the plants need two more weeks when we pull them. But so so um, uh, as, uh, as my friend Johnny told me the other day, he said, oh, so when you grew indoor, it's the first time that you grew finished plants. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and so, so they were, they were beautiful, colorful, uh, dense, uh, a, a complex terpene profile. Um, there, there weren't, mu- there wasn't much pest pressure or like chewing of leaves or they, they were, they were like an Olympic team. Um, and they tasted freaking incredible. So, um, it was a, it was a wild success. I'm happy to hear that, my friend. Yeah, I mean, again, it just it goes to show that if you do the right things um, and you look at the bigger picture, then you're going to have uh, a, a better, uh, more rich plant because you've had the biology and you have the diversity and you have all the components that, that, the, that everything needs to function properly. So, you know, kudos to you. I'm glad you had such a great run. Can't right wait to taste it. Yeah, right <laughs> and, 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 and I, of course, appreciate your, your help on all of this. Um, so let's, let's talk about the cover crop and then see, see into talking about scrog. Cause there's one thing I want to say. Um, I talk often about, um, I really like pink dandelions. They're an heirloom flower that just has become popular because Baker Creek seeds, um, uh, is, is putting it out now. And, um, um, if you, if you if if you do go and you're like oh pink dandelions that sounds great and like you go buy a pack of seeds for three bucks, uh, you know just make sure that you don't let them go to seed when you are in flower because uh, it absolutely sucks to have those little white puffs of dandelion seeds floating around in the tent and getting in your sticky flowers. That is not a win. And so what I do is that I just let them grow up and they look cool during veg and then anything that goes to seed during veg i like grab those seeds and i harvest them and i share them with my friends but if anything goes to seed during um flower i just go ahead and pull off that the seeds before before they fully form because i'm not willing to risk that just for some um you know, for, for some beautiful flowers, like, like I know which flowers I'm growing, you know? Um, so, so then the second thing I want to talk about is the experience that I had, um, using the scrog and, and this was actually probably the biggest challenge I had during the cycle. So, so I, I had the plants grow up. Um, I started, um, uh, weaving them through the scrog. Everything's great. Um, they start competing for space excessively and 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 what i found was 
because the plants were so strong and because I so fully filled in the scrog, what happened was it cut off the light to the soil down below. And up until this point, you know, I had the whole bottom filled with all these green plants, the dichondra and flowers and alpine strawberries and all this great stuff. Well, when the light got cut off from an effectively done scrog, all those plants below started to suffer. The dichondra started to pull back, the strawberries pulled back. Um, it, it started not looking happy down there. And so I realized that I was I was starting to experience big gaps of exposed um, soil top. And I don't want that because when you have bare exposed soil, um, you no longer have that little Amazonian buffer of weather uh, in the in the inch above the soil from the dichondra repens and strawberries. And, and with that bare soil, you can start getting a, something hydrophobic, right? So I'd, I'd be watering the top and the water just kind of like slides off the side of the bed and goes down the side and it doesn't go into the soil. And so I'm like, shit, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so um, after after asking around to, to Leighton and, 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 and some of my other friends, I realized that what I wanted to do was to replace that green mulch, that green um, top uh, cover crop um, with wood chips. And, and I'm like, all right, because if I used wood chips, then I could grow mushrooms. And I was very excited. I, I, I grow, you know, a variety of mushrooms and I'm like, oh my God, how cool would it be to be able to grow, um, uh, uh, cooking mushrooms, culinary mushrooms below my cannabis in the, in the shady area. So, so what I did is I, um, you know, I, I didn't really have good access to wood chips, but because I live on an island with lots of artists, I was able to find really nice hardwood, um, like refuse from woodworkers on the island who make like bowls and utensils and things like that. Really nice organic alder and, and oak and, um, uh, madrone and other other hardwoods um, that uh, a maple and uh, and and use those and th- that that worked out really well and I was able to get those and it was kind of fun because they're all in curly cues as well so they look festive and so I got a, a couple of huge bags of that just gifted to me from uh, artists on the island and I put that on top and so essentially I I I just. Uh, choked out the rest of the way um, all of the cover crops and and but before I put that down I reached out to my buddy Seth from Ready Set Shroom and um, and I got some uh, golden oyster um, and I got some wine cap uh, inoculated um, uh, you know sawdust and stuff and um, and and he shipped those up to me and I put those down so that when I put down these hardwoods on top of it um, eventually those mushrooms um, uh, occupied the hardwood and and I got some edible mushrooms so that part of it was cool but the part the part I would like you to uh, speak to Leighton is that a lot of people were really concerned for me that I had put air quotes wood chips on top 
because they said that the wood chips were going to steal nitrogen from the substrate. And that concerned me. And so when I told you about it, um, you explained to me that what they're talking about, what that biology is between wood chips, nitrogen, and the soil. But then you also explained why this wasn't going to happen with these cured hardwood bits that I was using. So will you go through that uh, for all of us? Oh, absolutely. So in the living plant, we talked a little bit earlier about endophytes. Um, so there's all different types of biology. And what happens when you take fresh green um, trees, branches, whatever, um, and you chip them up, um, they're going to go through the thermophilic process. Um, they're going to start breaking nitrogen down, breaking carbon down, and heating up. And that's that's where you have a problem because basically those thermophytes are going to steal any form of nitrogen that they can find and essentially starve the plant out um, because they're stealing it all to break down carbon. So that's where fresh new chips are absolutely problematic. Um, old age chips that are uh, punky, no problem. Curly hardwoods, no problem. They've been cured, uh, kiln dried, um, you know, left to, uh, or I should say, not left, but processed so that they don't warp and twist. Um, so again, it's not even comparable um, to what people would think of as fresh wood chips. It's 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 old wood. It's it has gone through uh, very much a. Um, pasteurizing process um, so that it's usable wood so, so that this no pasteurizing process it re removes much of the water from it because they're dried out and cured and so without that water component yes they will break down but they don't break down in the same way so they're not going to be stealing nitrogen perfectly said perfectly okay. said all right cool well thanks for thanks for hitting that so um so, so here we are, we talk about the scrog. The scrog was very effective, and when you use a scrog properly, um, uh, it essentially created every nug on the plant was a cola, which I was astonished to see for the first time, and I will now scrog everything, like, forever. And so, um, and, and, and so, um, I recommend that you consider scrogging if you have not. So, 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 Leighton, this brings us to that the, the end of third set, and this is everything we wanted to talk about today. Doing kind of like this debrief from from the bed, um, uh, you know, you have you know been assistant quarterback on this project from me. You know, you've you, you've you've taught me, and you have um, you know you know caught me from making mistakes um i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of like just kind of <clears throat> put myself um at your mercy i guess and and just say from from what you have seen um is there anything that we haven't talked about today that that either you know somewhere between i didn't do right at or or i could have done better that we haven't talked about and so and so you know don't don't be shy. I I I know I'm learning. So so, was there anything else that stands out for you that we should mention? I would have loved to see um, you make a uh, biological compost there um, using your plant matter, your leaves, everything that you've pulled off, um, as well as combining it with some stuff outside, and instead of using just all wood hardwood shavings i'd have loved you to mix those hardwood shavings in with 
um, that biologically rich compost that you made. Um, that would be the only thing that I could really complain about because I think, you know, based on our conversations, um, you did all of the steps, you know, correctly. And again, you know, nothing's perfect in nature, so we don't have to try to be perfect. Um, your combinations of, of materials, your effort. I mean, I loved the fact that you smashed rocks. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I love when you called me and said, I'm just going to get stone and bust rocks up. And then a day later, you called me back. Oh my God, you didn't warn me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and again, I'll reiterate why you want jagged edges. The more jagged edges there are there's more surface area for the biology to grow out its biofilm and begin to break that rock down and when it's smooth it's basically polished so that's the problem is the polish doesn't really allow them to set up in those tiny little crevices and pores and little tiny micro cracks that that would have been um you know a jagged edge so though, though that was pretty much you know the only pieces of the puzzle that i think um you know, I just want to make sure the listeners understand the reasons why um, that that I encourage you to make your own biological compost. So, this biological um, compost? Are you? <clears throat> what's it made out of? Is it? Are you? Were you? Did you mean like I like the parts of the cannabis plants that were not the flowers? You would have yep. liked to have seen me biologically compost the the sun leaves and the stem and like all the other biological parts, like after harvest. Is that your point? Yep. Yep. I get it. After harvest, every time you should be taking anything that you're not keeping and blend it with local greens and browns to the ratios we talked about um, and get it as soaking wet as you possibly can. Make a nice little pile of it. Um, get a compost thermometer. <laughs> monitor it. Um, once you get over the thermophilic process, in other words, once it hits a temperature and then starts going down, as soon as it goes down to... 100 degrees, throw a whole bunch of seeds on it and let those seeds grow and put miles of rhizosphere throughout that compost pile. Everyone's like, oh, you're, you're stealing nutrients. No, you're not. You're growing out biology, which is what you really want. And everything that grows there is going to die there and fall back down and make you more compost. So that is the trick to really getting a very biologically rich compost that you can use as a top dress because we lost you lost cation exchange sites you lost organic matter uh, between the start and the the very end results so you need to put that back in play so chips are great as a as a way to keep that microclimate um in in the top of the soil but it's also um it's not going to give you the, the kind of nutrition and biology that a compost would have done in the same place. Right on. Fair enough. So, <clears throat> Leighton, thank you so much. Like, let's see. I got a couple layers of thank you. Thank you very much for taking your time with me today and doing this this debrief of what the first cycle was like and and how we thought our way through it. Because really, we're not we're not really trying to teach a specific recipe that you have to use every time. We're trying to share a perspective of how these horizons work um, indoors, so that 
we can uh, biomimicry um, as much of the natural systems from the outdoors indoors. Um, so 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 thank you for you know joining me for the show today. But then also, brother, thank you for spending your time with me on this project. You know the hours of phone calls and me calling you because I was upset because something wasn't working right, and you essentially just you know making sure that I didn't like run my ship into an iceberg and so i I greatly appreciate both your experience and your willingness to play with me oh it's my pleasure shag it was my pleasure and and i'm glad that there's another more public example of this Uh, i get a lot of thank yous and, and dms and texts and emails about this and how it's made people's lives um so much easier because you're not you're not fighting the plant you're you're letting the plant guide you and you're just participating in its life which is you know that's kind of the way nature works we we don't well humans have tried to fight nature since you know we got started expanding but in reality we were just stewards of the planet before we you know got crazy and then you know just started expanding like you know or breeding like you know rabbits so um that's kind of why you know i think so many people have thanked me is because it's it's made their watering practices easier um they're they've got healthier plants um, the biological diversity is, is much greater so therefore the expressions that we're all looking for those you know second and tertiary metabolites um are are, are more potent or are, are more expressed and you know that's that's it i mean it's again biomimicry copy nature and um get those you know get those good uh diverse biological communities up and running for you and let them do the work so my pleasure dude right on excellent i've got to agree with you i get letters all the time about that um episode 54 on biomimicry and people are all like you have totally changed how um i grow thank you so much for you know doing that episode with layton so it it seems to be one of the things that we talk about here on shaping fire that really you know hit a nerve with people uh in both directions right there's a lot of people who are very excited and they're using it and they're you know it works for them and then there's people who are all like, this is not how I learned how to do this, and I need to do some pushback. And, you know, I appreciate that, too, as long as people are being polite about it. So, if you want to um, hear more Shaping Fire episodes with our dear friend Leighton Morrison, um, you can go to Shaping Fire episode 54 on uh, geology and biomimicry. And that is the original place where we talk about this horizon system, this horizon style, and explain the uh, the philosophy behind it, the why um, that we use it in um, containers. Um, you can also check out Shaping Fire episode 59 with Leighton Morrison, which is just simply called Water and Watering, and it explains the, the life of, uh, the hydro life of your container, and, uh, you know, kind of gives you an idea of exactly how much to water. Um, more recently, episode 82 on deploying um, aerobic and anaerobic soil and um, that is a a mind opening and you'll learn a lot about the types of compost teas that you're going to want to use on different varieties of soil at different times of life as well Um, if you want to follow along um, Leighton you can follow his Instagram at kingdom 
Aquaponics LLC, and you can find out what he's up to and also get announcements for his uh, incredibly popular podcast on the Future Cannabis uh, Project YouTube channel, which is on Thursdays. Um, But if you follow him on Instagram, um, you will always know who his upcoming guest is. And then finally, if you want to find out more about this, um, this, you know, regenerative tent that we grow in the Shaping Fire offices that we're using as this demo tent that we've been talking about today. Um, You can find lots of posts about it um, at Shaping Fire uh, Instagram, uh, where we post updates and how-tos and a lot of mistakes that I made, so it's always a pretty good laugh as well. And that, again, is at Shaping Fire on Instagram. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.